0: everyone. It's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I'm very excited to have this conversation today. I have with me two guests, and they are mother and daughter. And I am so excited to learn more about their relationship and their journey together. So today I have with me Celia and Claire Schlomer. Hi, Claire. Hi, Celia. So excited for you to be here um, and just share so much of yourselves with me and with my listeners. And so typically and traditionally when I have a guest on, the question is, what is your labor of love? But for this episode, I'm going to kind of preemptively talk label your relationship as a labor of love (laughs) that you have together and I am excited for you all to share what that labor and what that love has been like for both of you you know throughout the span of your relationship so whoever wants to kind of take the ball and start running go for it
1: all right I'll get started if that's okay um this is Celia and I am the mom of the dynamic duo. <laughs> um, and and this labor of love that is Claire and Celia. And that always dreamed of mom-daughter relationship. Claire is the oldest of my four kids. Um, and um, from the minute she got here, let's just say Claire very much made space in my world. and And was very much very a hundred percent, um, my attention from the very beginning, whether, and when I wanted her to, and when sometimes I, you know, as all new moms needed a break (laughs) and, and that wasn't necessarily coming at the time or the moment. But I think the reason that our story, um, is one I'm willing to be transparent and share is because there are so many layers of it that I think are relatable and it, Claire, suffice to say, as every child does, she changed my life, but she changed it in a lot of different ways, Um, typical and not so typical um, on the journey that we were on. And so that's kind of how I come into this space. Is there anything you want to add? No, um,
2: I mean, I, as far as how, I mean, it's definitely affected our relationship, good and bad, through My entire life, but I definitely, I feel like I haven't, not that I haven't done growing, but I haven't done growing, intentional growing and uh, work as far as our relationship and how I handle it until recently. And I mean, that's adolescence as much as it is having a disability. I mean, you don't realize that your parents are people until what? Like you're 25 and have a full frontal lobe and go, Oh shit. <laughs> um, so I feel like it was just as much as that as it was. I couldn't, I didn't know what was going on in my own head for 28 years of my life. That so brings up a
1: good point. I think, letting them know the end of the story. Yep. (laughs) And I was the beginning of the story in perspective.
0: Oh, I love that. And I, as, as I fancy myself in my head as a movie director, usually the movie is my life, right? So even when I'm writing, I weave out of, I never tell a story linearly. And so with that, I love the foundation you've laid, but I think it's important for the guests. Claire, tell us a little about yourself and I'll start by sharing how we got here. So um, I was introduced to Claire through Sarah Buffy, you know, my homie, um, go back to season one. She's my guest on there very early on. And she came to me and we were having a conversation. She was introduced to Claire and we wanted to have a conversation around I mean, we talked about so much, but it kind of started off with just this like mental health through social media, essentially. And so I'm sure it can still be found. You can go to my Facebook page is it was a Facebook live that Sarah Buffy, Claire and I did where we talked about um, the role of mental health in the ever emerging social media realm. And uh, Claire was able to share some of her story and her experience. And I appreciated it so much that I invited her to come to the podcast. And in the frame of that, she kind of talked about like her mother as well and how her relationship with her mother herself and her understanding of what um what she'll share with us has impacted her. So that's how we got here and I'm super excited <laughs> that through all these various avenues I get introduced to some really awesome amazing people and now that I was introduced to Claire I get uh, introduced to Celia. So y'all this is how my life works. And this is like <laughs> seriously like 98% of how all of my business comes to me no matter whether it's therapy or training, it's just it's relationships. So for a context, Claire, please tell us a little bit about yourself to anchor us in what we'll talk about for the rest of the episode.
2: Sure. So, like Shonda said, I was introduced to her through Sarah Buffy, who I met because my mom actually has also worked with her um, professionally. And we uh, talked about the role of or how social media is uh, impacting how we talk about trauma and how we talk about mental health and how it you know has helped me since my, back in 2020 i was finally um and i can you know say finally diagnosed with autism um after 28 years of having it and not knowing because i was born in the 90s and in the 90s autism was just a uh, an illness or a mental health diagnosis that was only in boys quote and i put that in big air quotes Um, because it presented very differently and young girls. And so I did not check any of the boxes. And so I, we were just kind of put me in this gray zone of undiagnosed learning disability. So I was still able to get supports in school. Um, We went through tons of different types of counseling with me growing up, Um, just trying to find something that fit. And then in 2020, I, w- you know, fast forward through most of my life, because all of that was a lot of the same. Um, I was hooked up with a counselor that, uh, and I asked her if she was able to diagnose me or knew anybody that was going willing to. And we did the testing and got the diagnosis. And honestly, it was such a big game changer. Like, you think that, you know, labels and diagnoses don't matter. It's not going to change who I am as a person. But it's been so, but it has And it's been so helpful to have that label, even if, you know, no matter how I choose to wear it, just knowing that I can seek out those supports or know that, you know, it's mainly for me, it was being able to seek out those supports and having access to supports and ways of processing and all of these different things that I felt I wasn't allowed access to without a diagnosis because I didn't want to be stepping on anybody's toes, so to speak. I didn't want to take away, um, from someone who, you know, really needed it. Um, but also it was just, it was nice to have an answer to a whole lot of questions because then suddenly everything going back 27, 28 years just started to make sense. All of, you know, any big breakdowns, um, how I processed several big traumas in my life, um, and all of that was just suddenly the clouds parted and um and so as hard as it was for me to wear the label of having autism um there are still some, some times that I say that I have ASD or I have autism spectrum disorder rather than saying that I am autistic um it but it's still been very helpful in the sense of just like getting to know myself and giving myself a break and knowing that like every time I'm triggered or anytime that something like that comes up that like I'm okay in my own head. And so that's where this whole conversation kind of started was the fact that like um, was how social media had been impacting that specifically. TikTok had been uh impacting how I allowed myself to exist in the world as somebody with autism. And that's,
1: that's really interesting. What I was going to share is that, that idea of, how she processed her experiences once she had that framework. Claire had an understanding of autism because of the field that I was in. And so she kind of knew what that was prior to being handed something that said based on, and they looked at paperwork from when she was very young all the way up till now. It wasn't just um, because it is really hard to diagnose in adulthood as long in addition to diagnosing as a girl. And so this counselor really worked with her and felt, pretty confident based on Claire's, Claire's own self-reflection that, that she very much fit that, that, that descriptor. And, but as I watched her then process life and process things that would have, um, you know, we had this journey that I talked about at the beginning that would have caused hiccups in this journey. I shared with you before we started that, that idea that, oops, that was your stuff now we can move forward. That was just your stuff. And and we can look at that. And isn't that interesting? Now let's figure out what we're going to do and kind of pull away from those moments. She saw them coming now. And so how she handled herself in that moment. And when we look at this as a mother daughter pair and not a daughter that was the only child. So Claire has a brother who's two years younger than her and a sister who is then two years younger than him and then a baby sister who's then 3 years younger so i have four between the ages of now 29 and 21 but it was a very different world when claire was undiagnosed and would have these same types of meltdowns often is the term used in the autistic community at 8 or 9 with a i can't do good math but let's say 3 or 4 year old mm-hmm. you know 2 or 3 year old you know and everybody in between it looked very different so it affected everyone and and my world was about not only protecting Claire from those moments, as I saw my role as a mom, protecting me and the kids and my husband from those moments. And as we grew growing as a mom with all the societal influences of how, how good children behave, Mm -hmm. you know, how good children belong, um, mental health stigma. I mean, Claire was seeing a counselor. It began with dreams and sleep because part of the reason that kept Claire, I think from getting the golden ticket of the diagnosis was her intellect. Claire was terribly bright. So, so trying to get, talk. yeah. And <laughs> she talked, she was saying eight and nine word sentences at less than two years old. So she was on. So all those things didn't fit what we knew of autism. Mm-hmm. And so she looked so capable that when we did hit these hurdles, whatever they were along the way, um, it didn't, it, it, it said something about her not being willing to and not wanting to, as opposed to not being able to. And so there was- Can a- I pause you right there? Yeah, please, yeah.
0: I want you to take a breath. I want, <laughs> you know, and I want Claire to Both take a us, breath. Yes. And, and I want the listeners to breathe in what you just said. Because I think that is such an important point. Um, so much of my experience of life, has been people making value judgments about children and about the people who parent them based on snapshot moments mm-hmm. that they often see in extremely dysregulating times in public. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating for me. And I acknowledge that I was one of those people. Mm-hmm. I had all kind of thoughts about parenting before I became one. Me too. <laughs> all the things I would never do, all the things I was going to do. And um, to be able to recognize that we as a culture have these things, these beliefs and these values that we sometimes don't even know that we're attached to. So one of them is bigger body, bigger expectation is what I call it. So if you've ever seen someone engaged with a very large toddler, it comes out. Yeah. Or if you've seen them engage with a very small adolescent, it comes out how the tone of voice that they use the the words they use and the expectations they have that these various these two this big toddler or this small statured adolescent almost the expectations are based on what they should or could should be able to do is wrapped up in how they engage with them not because of what they've been taught opportunities they've had to practice but because I'm looking at your body and I'm making an assessment about what I think you should be doing, even though I don't know you. So right. I can only imagine that there were times with this young girl, whatever statue you were, you're talking full sentences. And mm-hmm. as a person who I've been told started talking late, it wasn't even late still, you know, but once I did, I didn't stop. That's what I was told <laughs> <laughs> evidenced by my career. Um, but because I was able to verbally articulate myself, expectations of me were were different. It It didn't matter my age. It mattered right. the perception of how old people thought someone talked like that or did that. So Claire, I can imagine that your intellect set, it created this cognitive dissonance probably for many people to try right. to wrap their minds around why this little girl on one hand can do these things and say these things. And then in the other hand, mom must not just be doing a good job of making her daughter behave in public. Right. And, it,
2: and it's, and, and looking back on it now, it's really easy to go like, well, yeah, that makes sense because part of having autism is being able to memorize. I mean, I was reading at two because I had full books memorized. And so it's like one of those things where I was like, it's real easy to spit out facts and be just a trivia machine, but like, learning how to behave in the world. And I'm sure, again, I was very small. So being cog- like, this is all hindsight being 2020, 20, but like, and also, you know, my, my brief stint working with toddlers too, to just go like, how did anybody expect me to know that I should be able to do that? Yeah. Like, I mean, just cause I could talk a whole bunch. <laughs> It's a
0: crazy world. So I want to pause also for a second. And I want to caveat this with you're not um, going to be sharing a globalized experience. You're sharing Claire's experience. You're sharing Celia's experience. But I also don't want to take for granted that all of my listeners are familiar with autism. Oh, yeah. right and so would it would you would it be okay from both of your perspectives and I understand Celia you're also bringing in yes you're a mother but also in your professional capacity what can you tell us about autism in the way that you all have experienced it that would help the listeners also get a good understanding of kind of like when you say you were diagnosed with autism like or um, autism spectrum disorder like what are some of those things that you're talking about
1: yeah Okay. It's a neuro.
2: So autism is
1: a neuro, uh, what's the full word? Neuro. neuro well, I think of neurodivergent. neurodivergent we have, that's what they're using in the 2022. It's a, <laughs> uh,
2: it's a, it's a, it's a disorder that is diagnosed that has to do with, is it the,
1: it's not the, what part of your brain is it? Oh, I'm not going to go that far. I'm going to oh. simply say it is okay. actually a communication disorder. It is a neuro difference in how one thinks and processes language and how they use it. Um, it can often, it, it's called a spectrum you for a reason. A with autism to define yeah. autism based <laughs> it, on that definition right there. It's a spectrum. It's called a spectrum because you can have people who are totally nonverbal and cognitively impacted, or you can have someone like Claire who is often it was referred to as high functioning. That's not well embraced in the community anymore because it says less than about others, but that um, on that higher end of the spectrum, they are extremely verbal and often have higher IQs. If
2: we in the United States still used Asperger's as a diagnosis, I would have been diagnosed with Asperger's. We don't use it as a diagnosis anymore
1: but it affects speech and it affects how you process language is the easiest way to explain it and how and that is not just verbal language that's body language that's understanding social situations and social norms those things that culturally are part of society I'm sure my friends who know autism and know me from work well are going to think that I've butchered this <laughs> but as a mom that's kind of my experience and-
2: And I think it's important to realize too, when people think of a spectrum, that it is not a linear spectrum, like it is more like a color wheel spectrum. so you don't have, so when my my mom was describing like the high functioning, there's this idea that you have extreme autism, you're at this low end of the spectrum. And if you're really high functioning or, you know, you're at this other end of the spectrum, when really it's a circle and somebody who has really high communication, I'm pointing like the people are going to be able to hear me or see me, but uh, like if you imagine a color wheel and you're up at like the top part of the color wheel with really high communication, but you could be, you know, with really high like written communication, but you could be like really low on verbal communication or, um, and so like you can be all over on the spectrum and things can switch too. I've noticed that there's a difference in And, you know, part of this is just growing up, part of this is probably being out of the rigor of academia, where, where there were all of these very rigorous expectations of me, but like my, um, but like there have been things that have shifted as far as how my brain operates, even since my diagnosis, or even, you know, in the last 10 years, as far as, um,
1: how how I'm
2: able to understand things, how I process stress, all of all of that so like things can can move can move around too I used to not have as much food sensory issues and I've noticed in the last five years that I've like there are certain like I'm I'm not picky in terms of flavor but like certain textures have bothered me now more than they used to Mm -hmm. and like so things can move around and
1: sensory is a big part of it too that um um there's a diagnosis in there excuse me Um, why I pause and think sensory uh
2: Sensory disorder. Immigration. Sensory. Yeah. Immigration
1: disorder. Yes. Oh, yeah. Integration disorder. Why <laughs> no, couldn't I think of that's that? that okay. That's okay. okay. It took me a minute too. We're good. Yeah. But that whole sensory piece is a big part of it and and all of those things combined, you know. So um, that's a really long answer. To- no, that's a very helpful answer. <laughs> and as I
0: sit and listen, and I will say that um, my work in trauma has some intersections. Mm -hmm. Um, with this work. It's definitely not a specialty, but what grieves me as I hear you talk is in some ways you are describing something that's diagnosed, but I just hear the essence of the human experience. Mm -hmm. I think it's diagnosed because we live in an exploitive, capitalistic, white supremacist culture that has created a hierarchy for humanity and therefore those who don't ascribe to this ideal that only serves a very small population everything else is considered deviant but I listen to you talk and I'm like you're describing humanity my god do I not change and move and how I process you know those things and so Mm -hmm. with that I'm hoping that as we continue to have these kinds of conversations and again thank you both that people are kind of like not oh wait do I have autism I I don't think that's necessarily the question I think the question is oh wait people who have autism are human and that shifts conversations tremendously Claire you were gonna say something
2: oh I was just gonna say when you talked about it being the human experience and it you know we just live in a society that doesn't cater to that Um, I wasn't going to go into the full thing but if anybody's interested in looking it up that's actually part of the history as to why we don't use Asperger's as a diagnosis in the U.S. anymore and I don't want to get into like the whole Mm. history of that as a diagnosis but that does play into it's just the fact that like we realized why that was being used as a diagnosis and it really was just inhumane treatment of people historically with autism Um, so if anybody wants to go and look that up they can. But that was the little anecdote that your your comment made me think of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now for a pop reference culture and you may have more for people who are still like, oh, right. Uh Sheldon from yeah. Big Bang mm-hmm. Theory. He's yeah. a, a a very popular cultured um example of a person with extremely high IQ, right? But if you've watched the show, even in passing, you recognize that how he processes nonverbal sarcasm and some of these things that we take for granted um, kind of shows out and it's shown in this comedic way, um, and maybe highlighted to be this extreme case, but that would be an example of that. Another thing that, um, that I have, um, where my work intersects, um, is people who have experienced a lot of trauma and people with autism, often fall into that because of how they are treated, because of their neurodivergence, because of their differences. But when we experience ongoing pervasive trauma, what happens in our brainstem is for the the, most people, our brainstem, well, every person, the brainstem processes everything that's happening around us. But how much of that information makes it to the actual cognitive part of our brain is only around 4%, which when I first heard that, I was like, That's a lie. I'm from Detroit. I pay attention to what's going on. Nope girl, 4%. Can you imagine if we had to smell every smell, hear every sound, Mm -hmm. see every movement, like it would be too overwhelming to function as a human being. If we took in even 10% of what was happening around us at all times. And so our brain filters, as long as it makes sense for the environment and we've experienced it before it just kind of doesn't make it to our conscious awareness you want to try this out for yourself pause this right now and be silent for 30 seconds, all of a sudden you'll hear things you did not hear while you were listening to the podcast. You might hear birds chirping. You might hear a fan running you, you start to go like, oh, those things didn't just start happening because I paused it. They were always happening. I just wasn't consciously aware of them. Well, those who have autism, those who have experienced a lot of trauma because safety is paramount, like that window of input gets widened a little bit. Mm-hmm. So imagine even five or six percent coming in. Like I, I often say to people, unless I ask you to think about it, you probably can't feel your shirt on your skin. It's just there. Me, however, I sleeves the entire However, time. yes, sometimes <laughs> some of the things is all of that sensory stuff is heightened, and so noises are louder. And and so things that for us we can tune out that doesn't happen. Lights are bright brighter, smells are more you know pungent. <laughs> like so, all of those things. So keeping that in mind, and I I truly think if people just understood a little bit more of what the actual experience is like, the empathy that would happen, would shift how we treat people who experience the world differently. There is no more better, worse, good or bad. It's just like, dang, you can hear all that. Ooh, I I am encouraged to lower my voice because I recognize that it sounds like I'm yelling through a megaphone when really I was just talking. And instead of shaming you, for having an experience about that, I will be a good citizen of humanity and recognize that some people experience it different so I did did that feel like that encapsulated some yeah. of the things from you all's
1: perspective oh yeah. for sure and and you know growing me learning alongside her when it didn't have an identifier I, she did get the diagnosis growing up of um sensory disorder That's so she did in sensory integration disorder. She did have a diagnosis of ADHD. I mean, they tried to explain. She didn't float through the world without any of those identifiers. But as we began to understand or didn't have the explanation, how we parented changed. And and there was a moment six months ago where I had to look at Claire and go, I'm really sorry. Mm. I'm really sorry that how we did this as a way often directed by professionals and I'm Mm -hmm. in the profession. So I say that with love, but often directed by professionals I'm really sorry because that trauma that you spoke of, you know, we experienced it as family members alongside Claire, there was trauma for the other siblings and she is really aware of, of building new relationships with them. And, and those are really beginning to blossom, which is really cool as a mom to see the trauma for her of just, not having appropriate supports or having these unrealistic expectations because she was bright to be able to perform and do at a point where that she flip flopped the, um, her ability, her strengths, which was her intellect for her mental health Mm. because she wanted nothing more than to please everyone. And so when they saw how gifted she was, She had to perform. So I had a fourth grader that wouldn't go to bed before two in the morning Mm. because her homework wasn't perfect
0: yeah,
1: and and things like that. So I think that when you think about those spaces, I think as parents of typical children and anybody in between that level of um, forgiveness, that there's no real, I mean, there's a lot of parenting books, but you know, when there's as many parenting books as they are, there's probably no one book that can really even tell you how to do this. I mean, we're trying like heck, but there's a thousand of them for a reason. Cause there's a thousand different ways yeah. to do this. And I often say not wrong, just different, you know, and, and we kept scrambling and mm-hmm. kept scrambling, but I felt a need at one point to look at her and go, I'm really sorry. We didn't, it took us this long to figure this out. That's um,
0: so valuable. Um, and I appreciate that so much. Um, interestingly, um, within the last week or so. I actually wrote my mom a letter. Um wanted to write a letter because I wanted her to be able to come back and read versus having a conversation. But um I I came to a point where she had said something in passing about something in her childhood that struck a chord and it made me realize my mom never did that to me. Like what was done to her, she somewhere along the line made a commitment to not repeat those Mm. things intentionally. And while doing a lot of my healing work has concentrated on the missteps, the mistakes, the mishaps, and the missed opportunities that my parents had, I've gotten to a point in my healing where I think I can see it more wholly, not all good, not all bad. And I felt the need to write her a letter Telling her, I recognize that like, I I can be very verbal about how those misses have impacted me, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to let her know that I also see how intentional she was not to repeat those things that she knew to repeat. And then the other misses were just that misses because she didn't know Mm -hmm. it hadn't been given to her and, and that I forgave her for those. And I hope that my children have the same grace for me as I have the misses and the things like that. So I think, and I hope that I want it to show both sides of this coin mm-hmm. because as people are listening, I think as parents, one of the greatest things you can give your children is an apology and perhaps is high, high, high on my list because I know there are things I'll never receive an apology for. I've been wronged, I've been abused, I've been traumatized, I've been hurt. And I know that I might never get some of those apologies. But when I did get it from my mother, it was so impactful, right? Um, and so I appreciate that. And as a parent, I want to do the same thing. And I think there, there is no shortage of opportunities for someone listening to be on both sides of that. The person who issues the acknowledgement of harm. And the apology and the person who can be open enough to receive it. So thank you for sharing that. I'm curious if by way of story or anecdote, you could share some differences, maybe um, growing up younger, maybe adolescence. And now that this diagnosis is here, because we're talking about this, but what did, what, what did it look like? You have this extremely bright young lady who is like, You know, people are marveling that she's saying the things that she sang and and can articulate the things that she's articulating. But there I am assuming were times where it was very difficult, Claire, for you to manage all the incoming data and then how that manifested out of you. And in those earlier years, what what was that like for you, Claire? And then Celia, what was it like to parent that again alongside three other kids?
2: So yeah. I have to forgive me because one interesting aspect of this was that in 2011 I had a traumatic brain injury. So my memory, actually, of when also when you take into account that like a lot of that was traumatic, and you so there's my brain doing its own healing, and the fact that memories from your childhood fade, and the fact that I had a brain injury, um, I'm not sure if I can speak to my childhood anymore. Um,
1: but talk about relationships, friendships friendships um
2: so I I guess yeah okay we'll start with friendships then I think uh then the biggest thing that I can speak to then relationally what and it's still I mean still now but definitely then was um that friendships were hard um I was never the person that had a core group of friends I tended to bounce around um I had a few really good friends in elementary school and then we went off to different high schools and then just in growing and changing you want me to bring up the conversation but I don't want to say her name um where well I I was just going to say where I had a friend where it was like it was we were friends outside of school and and it was just that that barrier needed to be put down because I was the type of person that I because friendships were hard I would latch on to people and I still tend to do that I tend to find my my one person and when you uh you know you don't know why you're you know I could see how that you know hindsight being 2020 20 would have been hard for any teenager um to clarify do you
0: mean you were friends outside of school even though you went to school together is that yes. what you're saying so okay gotcha
2: she and I she and I had been friends since kindergarten and so when we went to high school together, um, We were not in the same class in seventh and eighth grade. Um, And then we were, you know, it was normal high school. We were in various classes together, but very different growing apart. We were in band together, but it was one of those things where um, my kind of, I don't like to say too much, but in the sense too much um, was, it was very much one of those things where we you know there was just boundaries put in place and um and so it was it was things like that where it was like i said i never had like that one core group of friends um and so that was that was the, the biggest thing
1: but what were I'm you going no, str- to i was trying to thinking, find a thought no, when i was thinking about relationships and friendships claire is one of the most loyal devoted friends you'll find And, and so she has these relationships that, that were steadfast from a very young year up until now, they're still good friends. And it went through, as Claire just described, kind of an up and down, you know, but, but those core people have remained. And, and so that relationship with Claire is something that she, she doesn't go, she, it takes a lot of trust to go deep, but yet when you've got her as a friend, if you, if, if you want her, she's there, it's loyal, but, but relationships have to be safe. It's that whole trauma space, right? And so it takes a lot to get her at that level of safe. And it's not easy to to keep her. I mean, if there's a, if there's a distrust kind of, you're going to lose her pretty quickly, but I think that in her way, she relates to people, when you think about communication being key to a relationship, nonverbal, verbal, verbal, I think that's some place where she looked dramatically different for a kid who was really bright and very talented. You always imagine those kids in high school that were all the best and the brightest. They had all the friends, right. But at the same time, she kind of stayed back in that respect. And so that's just one place I saw it. She always was in because of who we were as a family. She was in Brownies and she was in Girl Scouts and she was in a lot of things. And, and and thankfully, she was part of choir. Uh, a choir. That was the turning point. Choir was the turning point for her because not only was it a place she felt safe at the Cincinnati Children's Choir and now what's Cincinnati Youth Choir, is it modulated her. So that whole sensory integration, going and singing and having her chest vibrate and feeling that from her toes gave her a sensory balance that could calm her almost immediately And so that was a huge gift that she took into college.
2: Yeah. And I was going to say, I think even more on the modulation, if we're talking about friends too, I think part of it was, and I mean, I don't know if it was the fact that we didn't we only saw each other two days a week or what it was, but I have more friends that I'm still friends with through choir than I ever did through any of my education. And these are kids that, you know, and I'm talking like going through college too, like I'm still friends with some of these kids that, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that like, um, like I th- keep thinking about if Clark had had a big arts community mm-hmm. and that that would have been, and that, that was my, that was my theater. Mm-hmm. And so we were all just a bunch of weirdos and it didn't matter. And, um, I think about, um, how masking is used as a term a lot by people in the autism community to talk to about what it, or to talk about like what it's like to operate around typical people and i think if there was a group of people that i never really felt like i had to mask around like i think from even when i didn't know that that was a term that i could be using i think from a very young age um that was that was that group for me i mean i was talking to a friend of mine who i've now known for 20 something years because of choir and i think she's the only person that i've never been anything but me un you know unmasking or whatever in my life and I think it was just because those were very much my people and so but I think also too when she talked about the the um when my mom talked about the keeping people at a distance and everything too I didn't see them every day so I feel like that as far as building those friendships and building that trust over a long period of time that where that's where that was helpful yeah.
1: So I think um and the other thing I think of when I, what does it look like um Claire had meltdowns a lot I mean, from that time, she was very, we walked the floor with her when she was an infant for hours. We did the roll into the bed to try to sneak her to sleep, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better way of saying it. There were a lot of appointments because we just saw things. Somebody, when she finally was, got school support, it was the principal looking, no, the counselor, outside counselor who did the evaluation looking at me and going, it sounds like for as much as resources you have as a family and that. People that Claire has in her life, life should not be this hard. And I just burst into tears. I was like, "That's exactly it." You know, we're giving her; she's signed up for all the things. You know, she's doing all the things, and yet, it's still not enough. And so there were, um, and and meltdowns looked. You know, anything from her at the age of three. Um, again, sensory integration, deep pressure. When she was having a meltdown and she would be put in her room, right? She would remove the mattress and the box spring from her bed. And she had a regular size twin bed, but she was so frustrated. Oh, you were older than three. I'm sorry. You were, we were in. So yeah, she would be able to move that mattress and box spring from her bed on her own just to get out Mm -hmm. a level of frustration. We got one of those beautiful rainbow swing sets because that vestibular, that movement Um, helped balance her and so when she had a meltdown we would send her out to spin because she because spinning was something that really worked for her but it 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 meant that there were i mean there were moments of lots of screaming and yelling and and not just her me Mm -hmm. (laughs) you have to be Mm -hmm. honest as I said to her often when in my we apology, said to each other I said, ways. Yeah. I said, my only response to get you to stop yelling was to yell louder sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that really impacted mm-hmm. who I was as a mom for all my kids, because I began to get triggered pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in grade school and high school, in, in younger adulthood, what I said to my mom, friends who also had kids with disabilities, I said, you know, ADHD is a nice little diagnosis impulsivity at 12 and 13, or even at seven or eight means I interrupt you a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I don't pay attention Mm -hmm. impulsivity at 21, 22, 25 looks very different. And it, it was very frightening for me to know the possibility. She was still a great kid, but when she you know, things like my one thing that I sticks out in my mind all the time, is she would go to concerts by herself. If She couldn't get somebody to go with her and she wanted to go see a band. She went and I thought how incredibly brave to not let that keep you home. I wouldn't do that now. But she also <laughs> would stand in the alley until two in the morning waiting for the band to come out by herself because mm-hmm. she really wanted to meet that. Band. So, you know, it yeah. could look very different. I'm sorry. That was a very lengthy answer. No,
0: but I... I appreciate it. It everything you've said has been so valuable to my understanding. Celia, can you talk for a moment about what support or lack of support looked
1: like for you as a mom, as a parent? Yeah. Um, the community support was phenomenal. And what I learned so so I really didn't need much. It was just kind of those terrible twos and the whatever they call the threes. You know, I could convinced myself we began to have sleep issues very early on so children's hospital was there and they were terribly supportive so community sports were great it was when i got into school and we couldn't get through a week without and and she was great at school that's the other part she looked fabulous at school she looked like a kid who could perform until about fourth or fifth grade and so they kept you know i was I was, I affectionately used to call myself crazy mom, you know, mm. and those of us who work and and know kids with disabilities and no moms of kids, you get to that point where they keep looking at you and I'm sorry, we just don't see that. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of looking for that extra help or whatever it is. I, the first thing that her, when I wanted her evaluated in third grade, her teacher said in the meeting, Celia thinks she's gifted. And I just think she's just average. And And that was why she perceived me wanting this extra help for her because her scores were dropping. And mine was more that what it took to get that score, even the dropped score at home was getting ridiculous. Mm. And so, um, but as I learned about IDEA and the law that supports kids with disabilities, and I got that principal who looked up and said, I think we can give her a 504 at the very least. And we were seeing things in Claire's 504 because, again, she had a level of intellect. So we were seeing things like if Claire doesn't redo everybody's group work because she was in Montessori, then she can still get an A. I mean, they were impacting her grade by trying to prevent her from redoing the work because it wasn't up to Claire's standard. Mm -hmm. And Claire had no trouble with that. The social norms would have told us, don't do that. You won't have any friends. Mm -hmm. She didn't care. She wanted perfect work. So those kinds of things. Um, And I put that pressure on myself. It wasn't coming from them. Yeah. This was all internalized. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think um, for a lot, um, and I had to learn on my own. And I began a group at our elementary school with moms just meeting for coffee outside of school to talk about it. I found other moms that were struggling with that kind of twice exceptional space or a kid with a disability. And I learned from that. And what it ultimately did was it changed my career. I was a, a marketing and, and development kind of person, you know, with my career, worked in public relations and that kind of stuff throughout my, you know, kids growing up before I stopped completely by number four. But then I went into this space where I became an educational advocate mm-hmm. because I knew what I knew and I knew what parents didn't know. So I started going to the table with parents um, in two different roles, but. Um, and in that space began to really be able to, um, understand that, you know, we say, you know, what you didn't know, you know, parents don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that impacted how we responded in the last three years of Claire kind of what, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So again when we go back to that piece of mental health what led claire to her autism diagnosis and seeking that out in conversation with a counselor was because they tried to give another big heavy mental health diagnosis and she came to me and shared that with me and in a conversation i said with her to her i said hey that's a really what makes them think you that's what it is what are they what are they seeing and it was a short shorter term they'd seen her for a couple of weeks. A yeah.
2: And I thought
1: that I had borderline they, personality disorder. They were, Yeah. Borderline personality disorder. Yeah. So in that conversation, I said, what characteristics are these? And they, she walked through and I said, you know, and this was an off the cuff comment. I said, you know, those are attributes to of someone who's on the autism spectrum too. And she goes, do you think I have autism? And I said, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying, do we need another well, label? <laughs> do we need <laughs> another label? Do you, let's just work on you being content and happy with who you are and finding a level of peace in being in the world so that you can, you know, be in the world with confidence and comfort and, and joy. Spoiler alert. We needed a label. (laughs) (laughs) So that was when she, and then COVID happened and she was working with this counselor and she began to, to question that too, for Mm -hmm. lots of reasons. But, but I think that that was another space where, um, that support of knowing what I knew about these different diagnoses to go. Really? I don't know. Yeah. And being okay. Questioning that. And I, I had to be that mom that questioned
0: that. Mom that put questioned. I mm-hmm. love that. There's so much richness. Oh my God. Like uh, we could talk for hours and hours. Right. Yeah. Some of the things I want to highlight that you, that you said, um, when you talked about when both of you talked about Claire's involvement in choir, I know you kind of hit on it, but I want to like reemphasize that part when she talked about, when she used the word modulation, singing, humming. These are things that soothe the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. Um, go back to season one. Um, Amy Sullivan and I talk about polyvagal theory. We talk about this a lot in there. It soothes the vagus nerve. And so Think about when uh, an infant is dysregulated and just kind of this natural thing, people scoop it up, put it on the heart side, rock back and forth and sometimes hum, you know, all of these things that are sometimes this feel instinctive and intuitive, they are, they are our body's way of calming itself. So participation in choir, not only was it a gathering of the weirdos using her word, not mine, well, <laughs> but it's a place that sometimes the arts can sometimes be the place where the, the athletes, the academics, and all of those things where high value and emphasis is placed, but people can't find their place necessarily in there. There's this wide range of arts that is so welcoming and opening. So When we start looking at what gets cut first and funding Mm -hmm. across Mm -hmm. all of these things, it's the arts. And then we wonder why there is an uptick in mental health issues and stress because we're taking away a broad array of um, belonging, whether it is the visual arts, whether it's theater, whether it's singing, whether it's acting, whether it's, um, you know, like creative arts with painting and drawing. The arts are important. So I just wanted to come back and emphasize yeah. that yeah. not only did she have a place of belonging, but she was soothed through singing. Right. I think if people were to go like, who, who are some of the best times I've had, who can you randomly break into a random song and dance party with? Oh, right. Yeah. Those are some close people because it's also soothing. So I wanted to mention that that's super important. This idea of. um How. Claire showed up at school was different than how she showed up at home Mm -hmm. I think that is so key because so many of us know how to act in public right I'm not putting that on Claire I'm just I'm talking about me right Mm -hmm. I grew up with the strong emphasis of how you act how you behave in public right and there's this whole thing and even if that's not the emphasis my son sweet I went to his curriculum day. So I'm walking or, you know, I rock his schedule. They talk about the curriculum every time. So I was like, oh, who's your son? And I said it, they would get this look. Oh, he's so sweet. And he is. But what I've always known is that he could hold it together out there, but he would come home and all that overwhelm. And you know what? He could, he could hold it together out there. He could hold it together in front of his dad. He could hold it together with his siblings. But the moment I was present. It, he would he, some in in the breakdown didn't always have to be crying. it could be anger, it could be he's snippy it it whatever mm-hmm. it was, I realized and I have to continuously realize I'm that safe space where he gets to be be period. And so I need people to understand that. I think parents get it. a lot of parents will. but if you are making judgments about a young person or their parents, or their caregivers, based on the the hours you see them when they are not in their safe place, then mm-hmm. your judgment is it's off, it's wrong in any direction. And so we let's do that. And ultimately, community is essential. You know what I really appe- appreciate what you said, Celia, was when there wasn't community, you created community. And so kudos to you and I. The gr- the gratitude I have for you and creating that space for all the other moms right who just then had a space to go and there is this thing in our humanity and uh, again going back to capitalism white supremacy all that stuff that there's always this hierarchy Mm -hmm. oh how dare I complain it's not as bad as them you know at least my kid's not doing that or who are you to complain at least your kid is not blah 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 there's always some one upping or one downing and I'm hoping that this conversation allows all of us just to take a deep breath and really recognize that somewhere in here is this human experience. If we need each other and if we can lead with curiosity and compassion, so many of the services that we fight for and I think are necessary can become how we just live in yeah. community. With each other, when you see a, a, a parent or a caregiver having a difficult time, instead of rolling your eyes and saying, my kid would never, what would it look like to just give a, 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 a caring glance? I try to do that. Anytime I see a child in public, I try to, if I don't engage the parent, to look at them with as much compassion and love or just mouth, it's okay. I tried to smile because they're used to the looks of judgment, condemnation, scoffs, and all the things of control, this human. And I tried to be a counter to that. But just imagine if we, we lived our life like that, that this moment, this difficult moment is not the totality of a person's life. It's a human experience. And that's all, those are some of the things that came up for me. And yeah. we were yeah. kind of sharing, both of you were kind of sharing what that looked like.
1: You know, it's interesting. There's in my work, there's, there's a couple of things that I do, but one of the core beliefs of one of them is that all people have the right to live, love, work, play, and learn in their community and pursue their life aspirations. And if we just kind of stop and go, that's all we're all trying to do, Mm. you know, is to create that space for our families where we are appreciated. I, I use the phrase where we're missed when we're gone. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, you've got communities and Claire had community inquire because when she didn't show up one week, everybody asked where she was, you know, Mm -hmm. and we all look for those spaces, whether you're a kiddo with a significant disability or a significant mental health label, all we're looking for are those spaces that were missed when we're gone. And that when we come back, there's an empty space that someone's holding for us because there there's joy that we're back. And I think that sense of community that can come. And I think as I look at Claire since the label, um, what it does is it gives her permission to understand herself yeah. in the spaces that she's in, in the communities that she has. It gives her an opportunity, whether it's successful or not, to explain an interaction with someone that may be misunderstood or maybe causing that space that I've provided for myself or created for myself to start to get smaller. And it gives her an opportunity to choose whether or not an explanation is deserved or whether she feels like giving one, Mm. but she has the understanding of what happened where before she may not have. And I, as a mom, as I watch this now, as an adult, um, Claire being an adult, I think I was an adult, at least a good part of the time. (laughs) Um, but understanding it, reflecting back um, and knowing as you said the things that I did along the way you know i I made sure I got as much information as possible that's really important that paper learning or learning those that know more but connecting with somebody that's on your journey for anybody connecting with somebody else that's on a similar journey maybe two or three years ahead of you can be the best gift you can give yourself and doing it with intentionality finding that one person I did it um, in adulthood, as we were kind of moving into this space that became COVID, I ran into a woman and just one sentence, she said, I went, mm. and I knew I didn't have somebody at that point. And I reached out and I didn't say, oh, I have this daughter, Claire. And I just said, we should have lunch. Hmm. And we just hung out and grew a friendship and, hmm. and it's somebody, um, yeah, yeah, yeah so, yeah. Um, but, but it was one of those places that it just gives you that support that you need to just be able to go, oh, today was a tough one. And we need that in every aspect of our lives, not in just this space, Yeah. but in every aspect today was a tough one and have them go, Oh, I remember that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that was a tough day. I remember that day, you know, that kind of thing. So I just think that's my little tidbit of how to do it.
0: I love that. Before I ask for your final words, as we wrap up, I do want to, um, I really want to thank you, Claire, Mm -hmm. because you, um, you you have caused me to think more broadly about diagnosis. So in my practice, I don't diagnose, I'm not going to. Um, And I have my reasons for that. Sure. However, you have caused me to be more curious and open with the impact that diagnosis can have for some people. And the meaning making in a very helpful way that can happen within that and how it doesn't have to box you in and it doesn't have to have all of the negative associations I have. So I thank you for that. And that has been brewing and stirring since we met, you know, several months ago. And I was talking, you know, this leads right into a conversation I was literally happening I had last night. Um, and I, I don't think he'll mind me sharing. It's, it's my nephew. He's on off getting a doctorate um, and he's visually impaired. He's also a guest on my podcast. You know, I just realized I, I got some awesome people on my pocket <laughs> all the way back, yeah, back in season yeah. one. And you know, he, he was so awesome to come and share his experience with that. And as we were just talking about him moving from a, a small school where he did undergrad and graduate work to a very large school where he's doing his doctorate work and, and what it's like to make relationships like as an adult. And I, I just got this, like what I have experienced, I've shared this on the podcast a few times where he does not outwardly present as someone who is visually impaired. So there are assumptions that people make about him being a black man, the body type that he had all these things, right? Cause he doesn't look like mm-hmm. he has a visual impairment. And so then when he engages with the world, as he does, which one is literally missing all nonverbals, which is the majority right. of our conversations. Right. So he misses all that people make up stories. And one of the biggest examples I have is, you know, we're a wrestling family. We like, we like wrestling and we took him to a wrestling match with us once. And my husband, his uncle was like play by playing what was happening in the ring as we were sitting there and I'm watching the person in front of us grow increasingly irritated Uh. by the fact that everything is being like, almost like, you know, you could just see all the, the body things. Right. And at one point the person kind of gets ready to turn around. And when he does, he sees my nephew's walking stick. And I watched him literally, it looked like in his mind, he went, I'm a PR oh my god like he could just <laughs> see the shame wash over him you know it was just like oh but it was amazing that it was no longer it no longer appeared to be irritating to him uh-huh. he just moved on so context matters when uh-huh. he had more information uh-huh. it helped make sense of what was happening and then he realized I actually have the capacity to just ignore what's happening back here and focus up here and, and and it happens when we're walking through crowds how differently people engage with him when he's walking arm in arm with me versus when he has his cane out and so it's like that has he's shaped he's shaped my world when I think about how we mm-hmm. engage with the world and then how many people have impairments that we can't see right mm-hmm. and that clear you're never going to pull out a walking cane To move throughout the environments that you're in. But that walking cane automatically presents a different set of stereotypes and things that they pull out. But what if (laughs) y'all, the collective y'all, me included (laughs) in y'all, what if we navigated the world with the true understanding that everybody has stuff? Mm -hmm. Everybody has stuff. And we are dealing with the stuff as best we can. And then there are systems in place that penalize some stuff simply from being stuff. And then we got to navigate that as well. Um, There is a great call for compassion and curiosity. And so that's that's my continual invitation to us all let's lead with curiosity and compassion, it 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 can really shift the world. So as we get ready to wrap up, uh, I invite you, Claire, and you, Celia, to just share any last thoughts or invitations for us. Um, yeah, as 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 you have so graciously shared your experience.
2: Yeah, I guess if I was just gonna close with with one thing, it would kind of be piggybacking off what you just said, which is that everybody's got stuff and I feel like we can all benefit from just giving everybody the benefit of the doubt and compassion before immediate frustration. I mean, going off of your example, um, with, you know, the guy at the wrestling match and how he probably felt like he probably should have just ignored it the entire time and not let it get to him or whatever, or whether it's, you know, whether it's that or whether it's, you know, not, you know, apologizing or giving a caring glance to the mom struggling with her screaming child at the grocery store. I mean, we've all, we don't know what's going on just based on how we interact with people for five minutes in public. And so, yeah, we just got to recognize that everybody's got stuff, whether we can see it or not. And it doesn't invalidate it just because you can't see it. Like a disability is still a disability. Even if it doesn't come with a walking cane or a wheelchair or a handicap placard,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think for me, I, I just love the stuff conversation because um, I had not shared earlier um, that we affectionately called Claire's undiagnosed abilities <laughs> to as her stuff when she would have a challenge or something. We'd say, "Oh, don't, never mind. That's just your stuff." So, I think the. um, Recognition of stuff, the acceptance of stuff, um, and sometimes the adoration of stuff in the sense that, you know, it's beauty, it's who you are, it's, you know, and when we get bogged down as parents, especially of those expectations of what a well-mannered, mm-hmm. well-raised child looks like, performs like, you know, and, and social media is become that space where it was a huge gift to Claire to understanding herself and finding like-minded people and people that were struggling with the same thing she was struggling. But at the same time, there's that opposite side of everybody's child doing all those amazing things all the time. And those families that look as if they never have a care in the world and they never have stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So recognizing and being kind to yourself. I, you know, I invariably say with the families to the families I support, and I support families of kids in that realm. And I always say, nobody has been made or broken in their blank year, whatever age that particular child is. Keep in mind, very few people are made or broken in their five-year-old year, mm-hmm. in their sixth grade year. And this is all recoverable. You know, we we every day we get a do-over. And so just being kind to ourselves, as well as hoping that others are going to have that lens of kindness, of accepting, accept you, accept you as a mom, accept you as that person that, that is doing her best with what she knows today, or he knows Mm -hmm. today. And when you learn
0: more, you'll do, you'll, you'll integrate that knowing into it. Thank you for that. I want to thank you both so very much for um, just embodying what the evolution of relationship looks like through time, through knowing the ups and downs and being able to uh, collectively come and share that experience. I, I am so optimistic and hopeful that, whatever parent or not, someone hears this, that it will activate the opportunity for growth and learning. So thank you both. If someone heard something, maybe they're intrigued more about your story, or they just want to say, oh my goodness, me too, or whatever the thing is, how can folks get in touch with each of you if they show desired?
2: Um, I am on Facebook as Claire Schlomer, as it will be written in you know, the description for this podcast. And then I'm also at MC Schlomer on any and all other social media, primarily Instagram these days.
1: And I am on Facebook as Celia Flannery Shlomer. Um, and you'll know me because I'm connected to her Facebook page too. <laughs> um, or you can also email me um, and hopefully we'll have a way to share this other than just me spelling it out, which is, C as in cat Kat Frank Schlomer at gmail.com.
0: Yes, we will have all that in the show notes. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your time and your energy today and sharing it with me and my guests.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you very much.
0: Of course. I want to give a excuse me a special shout out to Trey Angel, who is my nephew, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast my producer Jay Sugg from instant classic media. Love you guys. Thank you for your support. I do want to remind you all that I do have a Patreon. So if you listen to the podcast regularly, if you check out my other content and you want to continue to support my work as a creator, and as a healer, head over to Patreon this month, uh, the month of September. We are talking about learning from the wisdom of the seasons and transitions. It's some good stuff, y'all. I was creating it like, oh, this is good. So <laughs> head on over to to Patreon um, to not only show your support and provide support there, but get uh Patreon exclusive content that's not anywhere else. Um, I'm on all the major social media outlets. If you haven't already, please go ahead and write a review. Give us that five star rating and share the podcast podcast with your loved ones and your friends. Until we connect again, you all be well.